Hello, it's Tuesday 3rd of October. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, we'll be rounding up a busy September by assessing the top eight travel and talking points from the ninth month of 2023. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So we are officially into the fourth quarter of 2023, and this is traditionally a busy part of the calendar for travel and tourism. Busy season in Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, and across the region. So Hannah and I have put together a list of September's top eight travel talking points, which will take us from Singapore to Cambodia, Malaysia to the Philippines, and Thailand to Indonesia. So Hannah, I guess we should start. It's a it's getting competitive, isn't it? Let's uh, should we take a look at the current numbers? Yeah, let's do that. So looking at international arrival numbers, which we know is not always you know it's not always the best proxy for how tourism is doing. Of course, you've got domestic tourism, but it's a good place to start because governments do tend to report that, whereas domestic is a little bit hit and miss. Um, so if we're looking at international arrivals numbers, Cambodia, we're in at about 3 million um, from January to July. So they're actually reached 80% recovery versus 2019. But as we said on the podcast last month, when we were also talking about how Cambodia had a pretty high recovery rate, it's changed. Patterns have changed. This is not necessarily arrivals by air. It's arrivals over the land border. And that tends to be very different patterns. That tends to not, in this case, benefit many of the land operators, many of the hotels in those tourism hotspots like Siem Reap. Um, but they are inching towards that 2023 target. They've got a target of 4 million, 3 million. So they've got 1 million to go in a quarter. They might just about do it. They're moving into their peak season now. So Indonesia right now is about 6.2 million. So if we're looking, how does that compare versus 2019? They're at about 67% of 2019 levels. So they're actually one of the, the slower countries in the region to recover. Target of about 7.4 million this year. So 6.2 versus 7.4. Again, almost there. I think they might make it. Malaysia. Um, so officially from January to July, they've announced 11 million. Um, they had an announcement, I think, that came in mid-August, September that put it somewhere more like 15 million, I think. Um, but overall, they're doing fairly well, about 70% recovery, target of 18 million. So getting there. Let's see. Philippines, 3.5 million. Um, they're actually one of the lowest. You know, Cambodia is 3.03 Philippines 3.5 and they've got an additional month. So actually Philippines is not that much further ahead than Cambodia, which when you think about it is quite surprising. And we, we can talk about that later, can't we, Gary? We've got a story about Philippines and why that might be surprising. Singapore is doing pretty well, 70% recovery. They've had 9 million visitors, had about 13 million the same period in 2019. Thailand, of course, is the, the outlier, the one with a huge amount of arrivals, 17.9 million, so almost 18 million. They're gunning for 28 million, if you remember. But actually, if you look in terms of recovery, they're one of the slowest. They're at 67% still um, versus 2019. So you can see why they were so keen to implement um, that visa on arrival scheme for Chinese tourists. And lastly, Vietnam, who was kind of leapfrogged, actually. So from January to September, and Vietnam is the only country in the region that reports their arrivals 
that month, you know, so they do it for October and it's September already. Um, already they're almost at 9 million. So they have now surpassed that target in 2023 of 8 million. But, you know, that always leads me to wonder, Gary, have countries just really lowballed when it comes to targets this year, just so that they can have a positive story to talk, talk about, oh, we hit our target. It doesn't really mean anything much, though, does it? No, it's a good point. Lowball, absolutely. Vietnam, for sure. I mean, they really lowballed themselves with 8 million target. And as you say, they're, they're almost at 9 million already. And they had a slow start, though, didn't they? So they've, they've recovered really well in the, in the second half of the year. Thailand, I mean, you mentioned that it's quite a low percentage, but it's just got the highest bar to reach, hasn't it? It was almost more or less 40 million visitors in 2019. Uh, the new prime minister, we'll talk about Thailand in a minute, but the new prime minister wants to hit 40 million next year in 2024. Yeah, the rest of the countries, Philippines, I agree with you. I mean, that uh, seems a remarkably low figure, 3.5 million visitors so far this year. You know, not far away is Taiwan. Taiwan actually welcomed its four millionth visitor quite recently. So Taiwan actually has more inbound visitors than the Philippines, which which is astonishing. It is, I, I guess, particularly because Chinese tour groups are still not allowed to Taiwan, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. So there we have it, a quick roundup of where we are in the region. So winners, I suppose, in terms of absolute recovery versus 2019, Cambodia, although with an asterisk, terms and conditions apply. Um, slowest, Philippines at 63%. Stay tuned for for the October roundup, Gary. Let's see how far they, things change then. I agree with that. But in absolute numbers, by far and away, the, the leader is Thailand. As you said, there are about 18 million. I'm sure we're going to get a new update just after the Golden Week, um, which will take that way beyond 19, I would think. But the interesting thing in, in uh, Thailand at the moment, Hannah, is just how the new government is prioritizing tourism development, tourism infrastructure development as part of ways to really fast track its economy, which, you know, the new prime minister said is like a sick child. Uh, they have three kind of key pillars to their their economy. One is exports. Well, there's not much they can do about global demand right now. Uh, the other is inbound investment. There's not a great deal they can do there because there's a, a pretty much a, a slowdown worldwide on investment. So tourism, you know, tourism is the, is the key element here. And in, I mean, they seem to be going full guns a blazing, don't they? Yeah. I mean, like you say, is infrastructure projects coming out of their ears at the moment. Um, so obviously this new airport promised for Phuket, uh, Chiang Mai is extending its operating hours um, to be pretty much 24-7, which they forecast is going to allow a lot more flights to land. Um, in reality, well, you know, I, I'm not sure that's the case. As you know, I'm always a little bit skeptical. And of course, we've got the new satellite terminal that just opened um, last week at Bangkok Suvarnabhumi Airport as well, which should really boost that capacity for Bangkok Airport. Yeah, the uh, the new the new terminal. I think it's supposed to be up and running at its full capacity next year, uh, and that will increase the the airport's um, full passenger capacity from fifty from sorry from forty five million to sixty million per year. Now, you know, that's the capital. I, I wanted to draw attention to, to Phuket, Hannah, because when the prime minister went to Phuket, his first visit mm. uh, was at the beginning of September. He talked about a, a second airport there. There's already progress on extending the current airport, I think. They're going to expand that from 12 million passengers a year to 18 million passengers a year. And there's also going to be a, a second airport. Is that currently the situation or, or have they decided against that, do you know? I'm not too sure. It seems to be lo lots of different reports coming in from <laughs> from different press, as as always in Thailand. Um, but you know, the the latest looks like new airport for Phuket, perhaps. So 
let's let's see let's see how that plays out and of course you know as as we always say these big infrastructure projects tend to take years to also come off you know you've got your feasibility studies and everything else that normally have to go on so by the time they finally decide everything they would have changed by then anyhow yeah true so just to sum that up a new terminal at Subhanapum, perhaps two airports in Phuket an uh, airport ex- uh, terminal extension in Krabi Pangna looks like there may be an international airport there. Still not quite clear about that either. And as you say, Chiang Mai is going to be opening 24-7 around the clock, it says. So I guess that will just be for the the peak season through to about March. Um, beyond that, there doesn't seem to be any decision at the moment. Yeah, so it's 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 really full steam ahead. And let's let's see. I mean, certainly, you know, a lot of these airports, I think we're already operating at capacity um, in 2019. But we're not yet back at that capacity yet are we for for 2022 you know we we were seeing those recovery levels for thailand just at 67 percent still but it's good that they're planning ahead clearly still got those very big ambitions remember what was it was it the target of 80 million by 2030 perhaps the the arrival numbers i guess they're still gunning for that I mean, there's there's just huge competition around the region. I was in I was at Hong Kong Airport recently. I mean, their new phase of their airport I think comes online. I think it's next year or the year after. That's huge. That 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 the expansion there. Singapore is building a whole new terminal. Vietnam is talking about or is underway of building new airports. KL. I don't think anything's going to happen at KLAA, but there is talk of expanding um, Subang Airport. So the, the hubs are going to be expanding, aren't there? And it's just there's going to be even greater competition for for passengers yeah exactly but i mean I, I guess the big question then to ask is of course how does this play off against the government's aims to be a sustainable tourism destination and how does this play against those aims of trying to you know, disperse tourists throughout a country rather than just developing these big tourist areas or main city locations like bangkok like kl uh, like ho chi minh you know, how how do you encourage people to visit the secondary cities, the tertiary cities? It doesn't seem to be that much focus on that right now. True, which brings us to our third um, talking point for this month, Hannah, and that's Bali. That's the the plan for its entry fee, 150,000 rupiah in um, entry fee, which looks like it's going to be put into place at the beginning of 2024. It does. I mean, and we, we always laugh about the 300 Thai baht um, Thailand tourist fee and how I'm incredibly skeptical that will ever come off. And actually, interestingly, that's not even been in the press, has it, since the new PM came in? I've not seen any press coverage about that. Oh, let's see see what comes up. But of course, Bali in the meantime has proposed its own, this 150,000 uh, Indonesian rupiah tourist fee that would well, go towards different things. It, different reports say different, maybe sustainability, maybe towards infrastructure, um, not entirely clear, but it seems that it may actually go ahead. Um, so there was an announcement last week that it may be imposed from Valentine's Day next year, February the 14th, 2024. They reckon it's going to take just 23 seconds for foreign tourists to pay this fee and that they have tested it. Um, so they are assuring tourists, you know, that there's not going to be queues because it just takes 23 seconds. They're talking about how they're going to have these cubicles there. Each one has two officers to make sure that they can get through everybody. Maybe 
there might be a possibility to pay through an online portal later on. It doesn't seem like that that will be in the first phase. Um, but I guess they're going a, a slightly different way. You know, when we were thinking about the Thailand tourist fee and they were looking more seriously at imposing it, they were really looking at using the airlines to implement that. You know, they were talking about by air, by land, by sea, but a lot of the sticking points where they were come running into trouble was that they were trying to get the airlines to implement it. And airlines were saying, hey, how do we do this? How can we essentially discriminate between a local who might not have to pay or even, I guess, a local resident who's who's not Thai but lives in Thailand versus, you know, a foreigner? And how do we have to do that? Bali seems to have leapfrogged that and decided to do it the old-fashioned way, right? Collect there and on the spot and then maybe later do it as an online system. Um, kind of avoiding this whole issue with the airlines and that kind of tech implementation. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things that jump out from, from what you said there, Hannah. <laughs> Number one, 23 seconds. Talk, talk about giving yourself a challenge and setting yourself up for failing. That goes wrong, you know, that will just go everywhere on social media, won't it? It took me three minutes, it took me four minutes, it took me five. You know, it, it, that's just a benchmark that you really shouldn't be talking about right now. The second point I think is quite interesting, Hannah. You mentioned that the, this fee... It's still unclear what its what its what its purpose is. You know, is it to try and deter people from coming? One hundred and fifty thousand. You'd probably say not. Is it going to be used for infrastructure development, as you said, sustainability projects? Still pretty unclear, isn't it? It just at the moment is looking like a new tax on tourists, but the actual clarity of why it's being imposed just doesn't seem to be there. Yeah, exactly. And I think we're missing that. And I I think tourists are you know, perhaps becoming more fed up of all of these random fees that are suddenly being imposed on them. And I think if destinations are a lot clearer about why these fees are being imposed or what this fee is going towards, and the local stakeholders, of course, as well, because they want to, you know, ensure that this money is being used for those things, being earmarked for better infrastructure, earmarked for sustainability projects, community tours, whatever it is, you need that clarity. And I think right now that's still missing. Absolutely. So let's move on to number four, Hannah. This is less about infrastructure. This is more about scare tactics, really. Two movies in China um, released, I think, at the end of August have created huge media hype around the world and a lot of uh, interest on Chinese social media because both of these movies relate to scams and frauds and you know, some of the unsavory elements of countries in Southeast Asia. The first movie, I think, which has probably got most attention is called No More Bets, um, which kind of links to the, the casino elements of some parts of Southeast Asia. And the other one um, is called Lost in the Stars. And that also is, is, is quite grim. There's, a, there's quite a nasty twist in that one. These two movies have created this kind of impression that it's dangerous to travel to Southeast Asia. Neither of them actually specifically mention a particular country. But, you know, everybody's kind of making their own assumptions on that. And as you noted, I think at the weekend, Hannah, this is actually impacting tourism boards. And, you know, they are trying to work out whether it's going to impact them, what the impact will be longer term. You know, the media has really picked up on this, that, you know, it's scaring away Chinese travelers. That's a dangerous thing with Golden Week here right now. I would suspect that the actual impact will be longer term. It's not going to be just immediate. But I've been asked about this quite a lot by Chinese media over the past month. I was in Macau last week and it was a talking point. A few people asked me about it there um, and they were in the travel industry. So, you know, it has had an impact. 
What it will actually do in terms of arrivals, I guess it's, it's probably a little bit too early to say. Yeah, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because, um, you know, I, I was uh, in Hokkaido at the Adventure Travel World Summit and one of my colleagues came over from China and we were discussing this and this was beginning of September. Um, and she was saying pre-pandemic, if you were saying that you were going to Thailand on social media, everyone would be like, wow, that's amazing. That's really cool. Um, and she said, now, you know, if people are like, oh, I'm going to Thailand, the comments are more like, oh, be careful. Are you sure it's safe? You know, that's an anecdotal thing, but it was very much in my mind as we've been seeing all of these news headlines around this. And, you know, Cambodia is upset about it. They're asking the Chinese ambassador to Cambodia to do something about it. Myanmar, and I, I love this, um, have, have said that it has tarnished uh, Myanmar's image of the country. Uh, I think it, it, it wasn't the movie, uh, Myanmar. Um, Thailand are also upset, worried, potentially about the impact. And the Thailand PM, you know, has, has, has really said that they're going to work together with China to combat fake news around this kind of thing. But look, Gary, even if you look at Malaysia or Southeast Asia, there have been a lot of headlines, even in Malaysia recently, about Malaysians going to Bangkok and almost being kidnapped or a Malaysian woman who went missing in the Golden Triangle when she was visiting northern Thailand. So I'd say it's in China, but it, there is also... A little bit more heightened fear, I think, in Southeast Asia as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was that case, wasn't there, earlier in the year of the, the Cambodian casino where there were, I think, some Vietnamese had been kidnapped and held against their will. And they, they you know, they ran out and you, you saw the videos of them escaping. I mean, and there's a lot of scams going on. I mean, you just, you, you know, your mobile phone every day is you're getting somebody trying to scam you on your phone through a text or a call. It is quite, it's quite virulent in the region. I can understand why particularly from China, you know, China, the Chinese social landscape is, is pretty safe. You know, it's a very safe country. M most Chinese have been isolated within their country for three years. There is naturally a tendency to be very self-aware, very concerned about personal security when they travel. Uh, and right now this is, it, it's making people scared, I think. But I, th I think, you know, the interesting thing that this shows is, is two things. One, certainly the power of Chinese social media. I mean, so many tourism boards, so many travel providers try to market the good stories through uh, Chinese social media. But bad news travels equally quickly, probably even faster. And that's something, you know, in terms of reputation management that needs to be looked at, I would guess. And the other part, I think, is, you know, the different use of movies. If, if we go back 10 years, I mean, I don't know if you remember the movie Lost in Thailand, Hannah, which was released right at the end of 2012. It was a, a knockabout comedy, three Chinese that were traveling around Chiang Mai, now, this movie had the opposite effect. It was a, it was a good uh, news story. It was fun. It was knockabout. And it, was, it really kick-started the, the outbound surge of Chinese travel into Thailand, particularly in 2013. So, you know, 10 years ago, it was all good news stories and, and reasons to go to, to, to Thailand. Um, at the moment, 10 years later, you know, the, the, the whole focus of those movies has changed. And it's about, you know, the social landscape and the fears. Um, which is quite interesting, I think. It is, and I think you, you make a great point about the Chinese social media and, and the power of it. Because again, you know, the last week we've seen, and this is not related to the scams, but again, things that have gone viral on Chinese social media, this whole incident about um, an Airbnb in Sabah allegedly having a, a spy camera in it that was spying on its Chinese tourists staying there. Um, and Philippines, you had this whole incident of one of the security workers allegedly swallowing these these dollar bills that they had allegedly stolen um, from a Chinese tourist. So it's like you say, it's 
it's something that destinations have to be aware of, tour operators have to be aware of, both the good and, and the bad side. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that, particularly post-COVID. We are in a different world now. We are in a different scenario. Uh, it is very competitive and, you know, bad news does travel very, very fast. So, uh, yeah, I guess uh, I, I think the Thai Prime Minister said he wants to go to, 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 to Beijing to, to try and sort this out. But, you know, it's, it's not as simple as that. Yeah, it becomes a political issue as well as a, as a tourism issue. So let's move on to something that's a bit more palatable, Hannah. This is Singapore. Singapore Tourism Board released a new video campaign last week. I think it's the first for three years. And very, very inspiring. I thought it was great. I thought it was one of the best things that they've done. It's called Made in Singapore. And it really turns the destination it, it was very, very up-tempo, very, very modern, very, very segmented into different sections. I think it's only about one, one minute, 20 seconds long. Very, very fast beautifully lit it looks like a movie trailer i think it's one of the best um, things in in destination tourism marketing i've seen this year it was posted by singapore tourism board on linkedin and it just got huge um response very very fast i think it's great i think it's it's the best thing in the region for sure um and i, I suspect that we will start seeing other destinations doing very very similar things i suspect we will so we will drop that link in the show notes so you can go check it out yourselves and let us know what you think as well Moving on to the Philippines, you referenced the Philippines earlier, Hannah. Now, this is an interesting story because this isn't related to anything we've talked about so far in the show. This is about employment uh, and human resources. Uh, Tell us a bit more. Yeah, exactly. So the Department of Tourism um, Secretary um, has big aims for the tourism industry um, in terms of employment. And she hopes that by 2028, so in just five years' time, um, tourism workers will count for 34 million Filipino workers. So let's put some context around this 34 million. So right now, the WTTC do these reports. They do these reports every year which assess the economic impact and also the number of people who are employed in the country for, in terms of tourism. So right now, as of 2022, they estimated that about 7.8 million Filipinos um, were in the tourism industry. So about 16.7% share of the total jobs. By 2023, they forecast that's going to be about 8.6 million. In 2019, it was about 9.5 million. So we and 9.5 million is already about one in five jobs population of the Philippines is 114 million. So if you're following all of these sums, and there's there's a lot of numbers out there, basically, the number of people employed in the Philippines tourism industry has got to grow from, even at its peak, 9.5 million in 2019 to 34 million in five years time. So basically, that means that every one job for 3.35 Filipinos is going to be in tourism industry. Um, so I love the 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 upbeat aim, but I think we're a little bit far from reality there. Yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, that's a huge number, isn't it? Thirty four million. That's equivalent to the full pub- um, population of Malaysia would actually be employed in the Philippines in tourism. I guess there's two elements to that. The Philippines has produced a, a new uh, tourism plan for the next five years to, to to really develop both domestic and international tourism. But I mean, it would have to develop pretty fast to to be able to accommodate that number of employees, as you said earlier, Hannah, you know, it's, it's lagging a little bit on its inbound arrivals. Domestic tourism probably quite strong at the moment. But you know, to, to be able to support 34 million people in an industry or related industries, 
uh, you're going to have to scale up pretty fast. Yeah, exactly. It made me wish now that I'd done my homework and seen how many million Thai workers are employed by tourism, you know, given the the huge um, GDP dependency on tourism in Thailand. But yeah, like you say, it's, it would be a huge amount. Perhaps she's really counting all of those indirect jobs as well, those informal tourism workers as, as well as more formal ones to get to this this huge number. And I guess part of the game of, of talking up this is is also trying to get a bigger budget. And you could then say, well, hey, look, you know, one in three of our population is employed by tourism. I need a bigger budget to support my aims, my goals. Um, perhaps that's what's behind it. Yeah, and, and I, I saw um, the tourism minister speak in Macau last week, uh, Christine Garcia Fresco, and she she did talk about this. She she referenced that figure that you mentioned there, thirty four million, and she said the aim is, as you said, which is a good point about increasing the budget. That the aim is to actually make tourism national. She said it's not national enough at the moment. There's too many parts of the Philippines that are missing out on the benefits of tourism, missing out on the job opportunities, and missing out of the economic flows that come with that. She wants to expand development across the countryside, particularly into areas of northern Philippines and Mindanao. But as you said, you know, to do that, it's, 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 a, it's a great objective. And, you know, you, you really want to level up the country, but it just takes time to do that. Absolutely. Five years is perhaps a little bit too short. <laughs> so let's move on to another story. And this is probably one that's closer to our, our hearts or stomachs, Gary, as I know we've both flown with uh, Malaysia Airlines in the last month or so. Tell us, what's what's the latest with Malaysia Airlines? Well, it's an extraordinary story, really. Mal- Malaysia Airlines decided to part ways with its catering company, which I think it's had a relationship for, well, I think it's like two or three decades, isn't it? There's been providing the, the food on board for Malaysia Airlines parted the ways about a month or so ago. And uh, Malaysia Airlines issued a press release saying that this is it is temporarily adjusting its in-flight meal off- offerings on specific domestic and international routes as it transitions to a new catering service provider. During this period, guests may encounter some modifications to the usual in-flight meals. Now, as you said, we've both flown Malaysian Airlines in the past couple of weeks. Certainly the, the meals are modified. The staff looked a little bit embarrassed, I thought. It's, a, it's an extraordinary story. And I guess probably the most interesting point I, that I've seen from this is who does, it, who does it choose next as its catering service provider? Because it's a big airline. It does need scale and capacity. Enter Tony Fernandez and Air Asia, who's saying that he would actually provide the Santan meal service to Malaysian Airlines if they asked him. I I suspect they probably won't. But this is just an extraordinary issue, I would say, you know, as we enter what, the fourth quarter of 2023, probably the most important tourism year in Malaysia's history. Um, Malaysia is known for its food. It promotes itself as as a culinary destination. And yet its airline has parted ways with its catering service. Pretty unfathomable. Yeah, it is. And, you know, and to have parted ways with a caterer, okay, I mean, these these things happen. But to really have not had a, a very solid business continuity plan in place to avoid all of those grumbles, um, that that for me is the, the astonishing part, um, that there, there wasn't a plan in place. You know, these things happen, business relationships change, um, but you, you need a very solid plan, particularly as we keep saying in this, this age of social media where those pictures of these replacement meals going around, it, it, it doesn't add to the experience. And 
you know, particularly for those passengers who are flying, let's say in business class, where food is really an important part of the offering. Um, you know, that's it's really a, a place where airlines can differentiate themselves from one another. You know, if you're being served a, a rather sad meal, you're not going to feel like you got your money's worth, are you? No, you're not. It's uh, it's an interesting story. It, it, it goes on. I mean, this is it's more than a month now, and there's no new announcement about how the service is going to be remedied. So, yeah, I mean, this moving into the, the peak season, there doesn't seem to be, as you said, a business continuity plan and any way to deal with this anytime soon. So, yeah, watch this space. And that takes us on to our final story for today, Hannah, which is good news. We're going to finish on a bit of an upbeat note, and that's UNESCO World Heritage Sites being added in Southeast Asia. Three new ones. Tell us more. Yes. So we now have three new UNESCO World Heritage Sites, uh, which are Koka in Cambodia. Next one's a little bit long. The Cosmological Axis of Yogyakarta and its Historic Landmarks in Indonesia. Um, and in Thailand, Sitep Historical Park in Pechobun, which is all fantastic. It's amazing. Like you say, it's a positive story. Great that we have another three sites that are you know, being recognized by UNESCO. But Thailand is seeing the, uh, I suppose, the challenge that you now start to face once you do become that UNESCO site and that already they are reporting an unexpected influx, they called it, of tourists visiting the Sitep Historical Park in Vetchabun. They're talking about how do you handle basically that many people, especially in a, in a heritage site. They might need to stop climbing up these ruins as well. It's all about how how do you manage that? How do you keep what was special about a site still special, but also promote it for tourists to come and visit. It's it's that that fine line that all of these um, sites are going to have to tread. Yeah, absolutely, and it's an interesting point because you know UNESCO World Heritage Site applications usually take quite a long time, usually a number of years. So you would imagine that you know planning should have been in place to mitigate any issues that there would be in terms of visitor numbers, uh, transport access, that kind of thing. But it's great news that there are three new places to visit around uh, around the region, Hannah. I, I, I saw a CTEP that looks pretty interesting. Coco, I don't know much about. Joe Jakarta, I mean, I'm surprised that actually wasn't already on the list. I thought that it already was. But that's that's quite a good mix of, uh, of new additions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, for Georgia, I don't know if it's because specifically it says the cosmological axis. So may, maybe that's the part that's that's new. I, I don't really know. I need to... I need to to get myself informed and, and read more about that. But Kokara, I, I visited in Cambodia, very nice. Um, so, yeah, it's, and it, of course, it's exciting for Cambodia, you know, and they really went all out and celebrated. Um, the, the prime minister in, instructed everybody to, to have a celebration that it was, you know, now inscribed in this World Heritage List. Um, so for smaller countries like that, it, it really is a significant milestone. You know, it's something that they look at and something that they're incredibly proud of. Yeah, and, and can draw draw tourists away from from the key attractions as well. Maybe reduce the numbers at, at Angkor Wat, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, that brings us to an end of the show for this week. We hope you enjoyed the podcast, and don't forget to send us your thoughts on comments and anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep, and as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com, 
and you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today. We'll both be back next week to discuss more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia. See you then.